Welcome to Becoming Boundary, the podcast that teaches you how to say yes to the space you need and the connection you crave. I'm your host, Krista Resnick. I'm a master life coach and boundary expert for women. I'm also a sought-after speaker and mother to three adultish sons. It wasn't that long ago that I was a boundary disaster. My time never felt like my own. I couldn't set a boundary and speak my truth. And my most important relationships suffered greatly. Fast forward to today and I've successfully coached thousands of women to heal from their people-pleasing patterns and step into true freedom and confidence. I created Becoming Boundary to help you do the same. Be sure to tune in for tips and tools from me, interviews with other incredible coaches and therapists and speakers, plus one-on-one live coaching calls and so much more. If you're ready to start setting healthy boundaries so you can create the space you need and the connection you crave, then you're in the right space. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Becoming Boundaried. So glad you are joining me here today for this live coaching session. Now, this session went pretty long, so it's a longer episode, but I think you'll find a lot of value inside what Blessing and I speak about. Blessing is the participant that came forward and volunteered to get coached on the podcast. And there was a lot here. And I don't mean a lot in terms of, oh my gosh, there's so much here. There's so much wrong. I don't mean that at all. There was just a lot of different moving parts. Blessing grew up with a very chaotic, traumatic childhood. And much of that trauma carried through into her adulthood in terms of sort of how she showed up and the relationships that she chose. And so that's really a lot of what we talked about inside this live coaching episode. So before you think, well, that doesn't necessarily apply to me. I didn't grow up with a traumatic you know, childhood. Consider are you a rule follower? Now, maybe you're a rule follower because you grew up in a chaotic childhood, such as Blessing did, and so you learned to play by the rules and follow the rules. And if you just knew what the rules were and won at the rules, you would stay safe. But maybe there's something else. Maybe you just grew up in a childhood or an environment that was controlling or everybody just sort of had to go along to get along. So consider. Maybe you didn't, again, you didn't grow up exactly as Blessing did, but there could be something else there. So was there a lot of chaos in your childhood or a lot of emotional tension in your home without the witnessing of what it really looked like to step into vulnerability, stepping into what I call repair work? Do you consider yourself boundaryless, perhaps someone who cannot seem to set a boundary for the life of them? (laughs) Do you settle for breadcrumbs? You know, any little bit of attention because you're so hungry for love, for validation. Do you struggle to create friendships, to be able to trust people, to be able to share your heart and your needs with other people? Do you struggle to stand firm in your boundaries? We talk about this and so much more inside this live coaching episode with Blessing. I know you'll get a lot of value from this. So let's go ahead and dive in to my coaching session with Blessing. Blessing, welcome to the podcast. What's your question? My question is that under the conditions of a divorce, 
where there is coercive control that include campaigns of silence and stonewalling, what boundaries can be implemented and how do we keep them when we are under court orders and accountable to the judge? Okay, so let's dive in a little bit to, first of all, I want, just for clarification, you are officially divorced or moving through the process of a divorce? It is a pending divorce that's been going on approximately 17 months. Okay, okay. So is he living at home? No, he was out on a, a protection order initially. Okay. So protection order out living amongst his own conditions. Okay. Uh, kids at home blessing. Yes. Okay. And so you're wondering about, obviously there's lawyers involved, courts involved. Talk to me about where you're wanting or where you're seeing that there needs to be some boundaries in place? What are some of the struggles, the current struggles? Uh, One example would be I'm court, well, we're both court ordered to not uh, sell assets unless we kind of cooperate together and mutually agree. But when there is no mutual agreement or communication or even a remote effort to participate, um, I've had to unilaterally sell assets. Uh, which is a boundary that I've held to uh, allow the children to continue to go to school, take care of them, allow them to, um, I'm sorry, be homeschooled. But I don't know if that's a healthy boundary or if that's an unhealthy boundary. Uh, Another example would be, I need to sell the house. We're supposed to have joint permission to do that. He's not cooperated for the last several months. And so I feel stuck and backed into a corner with these issues. Okay. Okay. So let's go back to the first one. And you mentioned you're kind of doubting whether it's a healthy boundary or an unhealthy boundary. So I just want to make sure I'm understanding you've been court ordered not to sell any assets and perhaps, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, feeling a little pressed for income resources to be able to continue life as you know it, you chose to sell off some of the assets. Correct. There was or is extreme financial abuse that's been going on. We had a company in the original, in the beginning, that he essentially unilaterally shut down and completely deprived us of income. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Is he providing any financial stability at all currently? Uh, His court ordered $785 a month. Um, He's not met any court order for medical expenses. And he's fighting tooth and nail to not pay any alimony. Okay. Okay. And are you currently working outside the home, home with the kids? Tell me a little bit about your situation in terms of work. I don't have an attorney right now. I'm pro se. So I'm working on the case full time. I am home with the children who are in a Christian homeschooling curriculum. We've homeschooled for quite a few years and I'm uh, working part-time out of the home and just started two new jobs. Like one is on call and one is where I can kind of have like a flexible schedule uh, where I'll be out of the home just in the evenings. Okay, okay. Not and, enough um, to sustain anything though. Yeah, right, exactly. And that's kind of where I was, was gonna go next is, you know, it sounds like there is a real need for some financial um, stability and consistency. Yes. So it makes sense that you would want to sell off these assets to be able to continue to provide and put food on the table and keep your kids in school. Correct. So let's kind of unpack when you, when you say, I don't know if it's a healthy boundary or not a healthy boundary. Can you talk to me a little bit more what you mean by that? By my nature, I tend to rigidly follow rules. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I think because I grew up with so much trauma and chaos, and then I married into it. So I'm a rule follower, because it tends to bring some kind of order in the chaos. Um, But when it's trying to follow the rule of a court of law, with a judge that um, has a lot of power and authority over me, it's terrifying. It's terrifying to make decisions 
that might upset him or that might maybe perceived as contempt when really trying to do what I needed to do to survive. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to mirror back to you, Blessing, that this really is a need of survival, of safety. It is a poor human need. So was there any, before I go in any other direction, was there any lashback at you selling the assets? Um, so it's been going on a long time. Like in the beginning, we had tried to surrender a horse uh, for different reasons at that point. And he had his lawyer threaten me to pull the Craigslist ad down. The same thing with a cat we tried to surrender. We were struggling with who was um, making messes in the home. I know these aren't assets financially, but just my attempts to try to resolve various problems. I tried to rent our shop. So our business was in the shop on, on our property in the backyard when he, he basically took all the assets, the business assets, he left and abandoned the property. Um, and then I tried to rent it to bring income in for uh, for the children. And his lawyer said, she needs to take it down. She's, she's dissipating assets. And so, but that income was there while he was working previously. And so when he left, there was no money there. So I tried to rent it to bring income in and they basically put a kibosh on it and squashed it. Mm, okay. Okay. Yeah. And so I, I just wanted clarity around that first, you know, you also said something, which is, which is more my role in all of this is kind of digging back a little bit into even what you mentioned, childhood trauma in terms of your own home life growing up, you know, feeling like things were chaotic, unsafe. And so of course there would be this desire, this tendency to lean into these rigid rules to mm -hmm. sort of bring a sense of, of safety to your system, because that is just what every child wants, correct? Yeah, they want security and safety. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. When you mentioned that, that it was a core need, <laughs> I mean, it seems obviously when you hear it, when you're going through it, it doesn't strike me as that, you know, that it's a core need because you're just functioning, you know, trying to get through a crisis, yeah. but there is guilt there. There's guilt about taking care of myself and doing what was necessary for the children. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Talk to me about guilt for the self-care, not guilt for breaking the rule. I mean, I'm worried about that, but there's guilt about doing the right thing and taking that next step. Yes. Okay. Talk to me about that. I don't know. Um, why do I feel guilty about taking care of myself and doing necessary things? Mm -hmm. Has that Probably. been a pattern for you? Say that again. Has that been a pattern for you? That's actually something I don't think I've explored a lot. Uh, I do recall at one point in my recovery, like being aware that I had enough energy and time to take care of everybody else to make sure the kids that were cared for he was cared for the property was cared for the business cared for the animals cared, you know but I didn't have a, a soft washcloth mm. or I didn't have um it sounds so I don't want to judge it but it sounds so stupid in the sense of I didn't have like hand soap that smelled pretty yeah. you know I didn't it wasn't until after I started recovery that started treating myself to little simple pleasures and self-care things like that. Like it's okay to have a, a soft washcloth that costs $5 rather than a $1 one from Walmart. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Talk to me a little bit blessing about your own upbringing and your relationship with your parents or caregivers. Um, I let's say my mom was a incest survivor herself from her own family. My father, I'm not sure exactly what his family of origin story is. Um, he grew up in a very rigid kind of stoic, like Eastern Bloc kind of family. Um, they were Polish. And my father struggled with sexual addiction from a very, very young age. Uh, there was alcoholism in both his parents' family and in my immediate family. 
Um, so as I understand it, both of my parents basically married into deprivation. Mm. Neither one of them had anything really to give authentically in love. Uh, we were provided for in the sense of having material goods, not like a roof over our head and clothes and food and stuff like that. But there was always like really stringent issues around that. Like you couldn't have a lot of sweets. They were rationed. Dad had a lot of alcohol, but we couldn't have a nice steak as a family. He had a Corvette and we were driving around a piece of crap car. You know, just as a lot of, I realized the abuse and its effect on me was a ton of deprivation. Yeah. Um, and the absence of anything really loving and warm or encouraging or nurturing. Yeah. And then I married into the same thing. Um, I understood it to be a trauma repetition and a reenactment of a core wound of rupture, like constantly living in a state of that deprivation and then never any kind of repair or abundance. Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean by repair? Um, as a disconnect. So childhood trauma, there was tons of rupture, fighting, arguing, police, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. But then there was never any uh, reparation or connection afterwards to bring any kind of healing. Uh, go ahead. No, no, I was just in agreement with you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, and my, my understanding now, all these years later after doing recovery, is that when you have a trauma or complex trauma, it's not necessarily the trauma that debilitates us. It's the lack of authentic attachment, attunement, and care and nurture afterwards. So yes. you end up just being a bleeding raw wound that yes. never quite heals. Yes, exactly. You're spot on. Life keeps lifing, as I always like to say, and there will always be, whenever we are in relationship, there were, will always be conflict. Now you did have, you know, some, some actual experiences some pretty sounds like, um, we'll call them maybe intense experiences, which we can unpack a little bit if need be in terms of, you know, what you saw and what you witnessed and what was lacking. But um, as long as we are in relationship with other people, there's always going to be disruption. There's always going to be conflict because that's just how relationship works. And so much healing takes place inside repair. Like repair is, is everything. It's vital. You know, my husband and I can have an argument and we can see things differently, but it's really in the repair work, what happens after that is the medicine, it's, it's the healing bone. And right. so to your point, correct, that when there never was that repair, when there never was that, I'm so sorry that I said this to you, I can see how that hurt you. I can see the sadness when you never received that as a little girl, what kind of messaging do you think blessing you sort of took on as a little one? Uh, it was profound. My early recovery showed me that I believed, and this is unconsciously, like this was through a lot of prayer and meditation and inventories, and, you know, really staying present, but showed me that I didn't even believe I deserved to exist. Yeah. I believed that I didn't exist. I believed that I didn't belong or that I wasn't worthy. Um, certainly not important. Um, and I used to believe that I was invisible. Mm. Until I started recovery and all these things were revealed and, you know, healed. Yeah. Yeah. Those are some big ouchies. Yeah. I wasn't worthy. I don't deserve to exist. I'm invisible. Those are big blessing. And then when I learned more healing and I, you know, I had to work on my own boundaries, you know, I, it's easy for me to blame somebody else and be like, well, you're not doing this, but I had my part in some stuff and work on my own boundaries and integrity. And so when I learned to better identify my own feelings and my own needs and then make healthy, reasonable requests, I was still put into a place by the people I'm involved with a very toxic family, very toxic spouse um, of just rejection, abandonment. Uh, so it was constant. So even when I learned to become vulnerable and open and ask for things needs to be met reasonably, you know, can I have a hug or can we spend time together or would you be willing to do this? 
it was still deprivation. Yeah. Which completely re-traumatized me all over yes. again. So like, yeah. I was like boundaryless. I was like, oh, I have healing. I love you. Let's try this. And I just hurt myself over and over and over again, not knowing that I was also attached to rejection and abandonment and pain, you know? Well, all of those things in your external world took you on a journey back to everything that felt familiar as a little girl. Yeah. 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 And yeah, I'm a big fan of vulnerability and, you know, it sounds like you've learned some nonviolent communication skills and, and mm-hmm. all of that. Like, I'm the number one fan of all of those things. And there are times where we do need to be careful who we are being vulnerable and open with and and giving our hearts to if we know that they have a pattern of not being able to hold us and meet us in our in our most vulnerable places. Right. And I was boundaryless there. I just I was excited about recovery. I was excited about second chances and healing and the promise it held of, you know, renewing our relationship. Um, And I was, I think I fell in love with the ideal of it rather than the reality of it, because I just kept allowing myself to get hurt by this person. And it really, really re-traumatized everything over again. Well, and it makes sense because you know, all of us want to be seen, be heard, be loved. We want to belong. Again, core human needs. So of course, yeah. you're going to reach out to the person that you chose as a partner to try to meet you in those things, yeah. to try to offer that to you. Does, it, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. So all of that, sort of unpacking all of that, can you sort of begin to understand why you might struggle a little bit to question, to doubt, to maybe perhaps not 100% trust yourself when it comes to setting some of these boundaries? Yes, I actually do. And it's been a thousand little tiny baby steps of coming out of uh, fear panic, anxiety, sometimes terror, um, because there has been, you had asked about backlash or fallout before there has been that. Um, when I filed the protection order against him in October, three weeks later, he filed a divorce against me. It was like, (laughs) I was blindsided. Mm -hmm. Um, there was other times where I had needed, when I had discovered the addiction in the family, I had, um, we ran a business together and I did the, you know, the administrative part and he did the, you know, the the hard work and the labor and stuff. And I had to move money around to protect it because he was acting out and I moved him money around, you know, I had counsel from, you know, my therapist and the banker and, you know, legal attorney and stuff. And I disclosed what I did with the money, where it went. And he just went ballistic after that. And, you know, he changed the lock on the shop. He, uh, took our thumb drives. He took the QuickBooks. There's just all kinds of things that he did. So I did one action that was in wisdom and prudence that terrified me and the fallout was crazy. So I dealt with the new fallout and then made my Mm. next decisions. So it was just this constant coping with a new crisis and a new crisis. And because the business was a family business, it's just him and I, it was the sole income. It's been a long, long journey of trying to figure out how to disentangle all this to get some freedom. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm curious, going back a little bit into your childhood, what happened, Blessing, when you didn't play by the rules? We were screamed at. We were intimidated. I remember my dad being in my face, raging at me. I could still see the spit bubbles on his teeth. Yeah. Um, We were punished by having our, be put over his lap with our pants down and being hit with a belt or his bare hands. Mm. And if we, I I say we, because there's my brother, I have a younger, older, younger brother. Um, Or if we tried to block or protect ourselves with our hands to avoid being hit, because you're really vulnerable upside down like that with your, you know, your rear end in the air he would bind our hands and hold them um and so it was just like always living on eggshells 
trying not to trigger him and you get into the people pleasing and just trying to keep the house perfectly clean to avoid any, you know, anger or rage or anything like that. So, yeah. Yeah. That constant walking on eggshells, the constant, you know, who do I need to be in this situation in order to stay safe? Mm -hmm. What do I need to do to just be safe? Yeah. Even when I got older though, like I remember one time I was, a, I was a young adult, had my daughter, she was about maybe two and my dad had been drinking heavily, but he's a very good functional drunk. Very, very bright man, very bright man. And I said, I need to go to the train station tomorrow to go home. Would you mind not drinking tomorrow before we go to the train station? We got up and went to get ready to go to the train station, sat there with a drink. And I said, well, you know, I thought I had requested you not to drink. So we didn't have to put Rob, you know, my daughter in the car um, with somebody that was drinking. He goes, well, that's your problem. You need to find a ride now. Mm. I'm like, okay. And on the way, I'm, I'm sorry. I think I mixed up two different stories. There was one that was similar. I ended up getting a ride from his girlfriend, but there was a similar story where there was some kind of conflict and I left his place to go home early. He brought me to the airport and he called me a whore. Mm. Um, even now in the divorce, he's testifying for my husband. Um, and I asked him for help multiple times and he's just like, no, I don't believe, you know, it's like, I don't believe you. I don't believe the accusations that are being made. I'm not going to help you. So he's withdrawn all support, um, of a father. So there's just, when I stood up to my husband, I lost my husband. When yeah. I stood up to my father, I lost my father. Yeah. When I stood up to these people who were abusers, I lost them. Um, I was married for 17 years and obviously with my father, he was, you know, I'm 47. I was, I think I moved out when I was 17 or 18. We had this on and off again, hateful relationship, but um, not hateful, but like it was, there was never any um, real bonding or attachment ever. He, he was my sexual abuser. So it's just, the story just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And so I stopped finally trying to go to these people to get my needs met. Yeah. <laughs> Because they just yeah. felt like I'm doing was hurting me. Yeah. Um, and it was my own insanity to try to keep going to people that were hurting me. Um, and I just focused on myself and healing. Yeah. And I made it a lifestyle. And that is the best thing that you can do moving forward, including, you know, we've already kind of talked about the topics of self-care and really minimizing the guilt around that. So that, you know, you're going through something really challenging right now, something really big. And so extra nourishment, extra self-care, extra nervous system work to ensure that you are being a good parent to yourself and mm -hmm. nurturing you is going to be number one. When we do that blessing, we start to build a relationship of trust with ourselves that won't cause us to question, oh, is this a healthy boundary? Is this not a healthy boundary? Like, mm, like we will just stand so convicted in what we need and what we desire to give ourselves and our choices that there will be no contemplation of what's right and what's wrong. And, oh gosh, I don't know. Am I going to get in trouble? Mm -hmm. All of the, the questioning that I'm sure comes, comes with this situation. So let's talk before we move on here, going back just one more time to, to that little girl that, you know, you've described probably has had, has, or had maybe more of an anxious attachment style, you know, looking outside of herself to gain validation, to gain her worth, to gain love, you know, just probably settling in some aspects for crumbs of whatever someone would give her, of course, because you were so hungry for it. Does that seem true? Yeah, crumbs, crumbs, <laughs> crumbs are accurate. Yeah. Uh, my husband and I had done an intensive with a doctor in Colorado regarding uh, around the sexual, is it sexual addiction? And he talked to us about, you know, the love bonding and mitigating pain, you know, love for pain by just kind of managing somebody, you know, the abusive partner managing somebody with little tiny bits of love and attention. So a cup of coffee or a meal or a walk, and then things would just go back the way they were. And I just always accepted them because they work. I was happy to yeah. um, 
try to connect with him in those moments. And I realize now looking back that I was trying to connect with somebody and be intimate with somebody that really didn't want to. He really honestly did not want me. Mm. Most of his behavior pointed to that. And just recently I processed, um, you know, you talk about the crumbs of love, what I find in loving myself and the healing is honoring these experiences, allowing myself to grieve or feel angry or whatever it is, or feel the panic and terror that's underneath them. Um, and just recently I processed uh, a little bit of self-hatred, mm. um, self-hatred and shame and disgust. Toward, originally the disgust was towards my sexual abuser and my spouse. And I worked through that. I'm like, that's not them. That's something to do with me. And I was projecting my dad's abuse on me, you know, internally and then out on somebody else. Um, but I realized that I was angry at myself and ashamed of myself and felt hatred towards myself, like unconsciously, like it's not like I you know, was doing naming behaviors or anything like that. Um, for unconsciously choosing somebody like that. Yeah. Choosing to marry into a situation like mine. And I know we do that because that's what intuitively feels comfortable to us, but we don't, I didn't consciously choose it. And so no. I'm angry at that, right? I'm angry at the wasted years. I'm angry at the lost dreams and, you know, the grieving that. So, and that was cathartic for me was to yeah. look at it in the face and be like, yeah, you don't own me anymore. <laughs> yeah. No, I did the best I could. And I loved as best as I possibly could with all of who I was. And yeah. I can't be ashamed of that. That's the little girl that I want you to go to bat for is that little girl that never got her needs met that little girl that was never shown the love that she deserved that she needed the attention the opportunity to let her light shine to let her voice be heard in her own four walls. Mm -hmm. That's the little girl that I want you to fight for. Well, I'm doing that in a way in the divorce, um, not having an attorney and being pro se right now. I've been able to uh, do several of my own affidavits and motions, and they're quite extensive. And I'm, again, afraid of upsetting the judge, uh, but a lot is falling through the crack in the, in the cracks the last 17 months. And I'm just standing in my truth. I'm telling my story. I'm putting the evidence together that has to do with the story, you know, what the truth of the reality of what's happened for us. Um, but there's still a fear. They're like, there's never really just this bold conviction. It's always this confidence with this tremor of fear underneath. You know, it's not fully integrated. Um, I've done the same thing with the guardian ad litem and just showed up and I gave him case numbers from subpoenas and said that these were my concerns and all this, all the evidence that I needed to give to him. And he turned around and accused me of parental alienation. Mm. I'm like, what is going on here? Yeah. So even in the face of that fear and that accusation and the big picture, I'm like, I can't back down from what's really happening and what's gone on. Yeah. Or else I'm participating in the problem and I'm perpetuating it. And I'm not going to be the mom that stands and allows it to happen, you know, to the children. Yes. I want to stand in the gap of the dysfunction and the, um, the abuse and all these dynamics that are happening. Can you really see, Blessing, what a pattern breaker you are and how you actually are really standing in your truth and your sovereignty and changing these patterns? I can. Um, I'm Christian. I made a vow to God that I would stand in the gap of generational sin and abuse. Like, because I know, you know, it's not just my dad. My dad didn't do the things he did without somebody doing something to him. So I have that compassion generationally. My struggle is in the domestic abuse or the interpersonal violence is I've lost everything. I really and truly standing alone in an earthly way. Um, you know, my mother-in-law doesn't speak to me. My father doesn't speak to me. My aunt doesn't talk to me. I have another aunt that is a part of my father's family dynamic and that family of origin of the incest and the gaslighting. And they've actually hidden her and isolated her from me. So it's not just the divorce that's going on. It's a, uh, the neighbors have threatened me. My husband's, um, uh, my soon to be ex-husband, sorry, current girlfriend has dated a pedophile and a child sex offender. And she's like filed a protection order, a frivolous protection order against me. So it's not just the divorce or it's not just healing from trauma. It is an all out full blown domestic abuse assault. 
short of being punched and beat to death every day. Yeah. All the coercive control and post-separation abuse is going on. Um, and in a way, I'm I'm superwoman. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a, like a grandiose way. I'm like, I am surviving something that's almost humanly impossible without having a lot of support. Yeah. And still being a good mom. And still yeah. getting, you know, the children are eating and they're going to school and they're having some enrichment and we're getting to our worship and I'm being able to attend to their needs most of the time, like attune into them. Um, so it's really nothing short of a miracle. It truly yeah. is. So yes, I do see that, but I still waffle. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so a couple of things, first of all, let's talk about the waffling really normal. Okay. Like and so I think if we just call it out and normalize it, sometimes that can even help to subside it a little bit. Okay. Anybody in your shoes, blessing, is going to go to bat in that courtroom when you are up against some of the things that you are going up against with their knees knocking, with their armpits, as I like to say, sweating a little bit, perhaps mm-hmm. even being flushed in the face. That is simply your nervous system responding to what it perceives as a scary situation. You are not doing anything wrong. That is your fear response kicking in. So when you feel that fear, describe to me what happens in your body so that we can start to recognize it. Can I ask you for clarity first? Yeah, absolutely. So are you saying um, some of the natural biological responses may just be fear and not, um, what were we just talking about? I think I lost my train of thought, sorry. (laughs) No, that's okay, you're doing great. So when you are going into that courtroom and you're dealing with attorneys and you're dealing with judges and your body's having a response and you're, you're starting to go into kind of that fear response of perhaps, you know, a little bit of maybe fight, flight, freeze, mm-hmm. you know, whatever's happening in your body. Are you able to notice what is happening in your body when you're having a, a fear response or a stress response? Ironically, it doesn't happen very often in the courtroom. And I'm not sure why I, I do, like I said, I'm a woman of faith. I believe that's a grace, but there are other times where it does happen. And no, it feels like it's usually a direct engagement or some kind of indirect engagement I have to have with my spouse. Um, and it feels like trauma to me. It feels like I get the chemical whoosh in the back of the head. Okay. Um, I feel the adrenaline. Um, sometimes the, you know, the slithering and the dread in the stomach, the fear in the stomach. Uh, and I think my default is generally to go to fight okay. rather than flight. Um, so you want to defend yourself? You want to take Yeah. It and I think that comes in conjointly with, because there was so much severe gaslighting in my childhood and then in my marriage <laughs> yeah. and then after discovery. And then in the divorce, I mean, it's still going on. I mean, it's just never ending. Um, And now I can call it out logically. I can call out the Darvo. I can call out all of these behaviors and stand up and literally paint the path of the dynamic. Um, But there's still fear there because there's always backlash. Another example is uh, my husband's joint custody. My husband bought my son a, a gun the other day and sent it home. Mm. I'm parenting time and I'm like absolutely not and I and I'm I'm a gun advocate Uh, I absolutely believe in the right to bear arms safely but I don't believe in somebody buying one and jamming it in your face and say here you're gonna be responsible for this yeah I wasn't gonna take the responsibility and I said no and it was difficult because I broke my son's heart I want him to have it I desire him to have some of these things but I'm not in a position now to supervise him properly so I recognize my limitations there nor did I consent to it nor is there any regard or basic communication to say, hey, this is going to happen. Is this okay? And so I investigated to make sure it was a legal, legal transaction, um, called the police, which was terrifying. And I was waiting for the backlash. They returned the gun to him. And then the girlfriend is online telling me what a C-U-N-T I am. And now that I'm stalking her. So the fallout doesn't come directly from him. It comes from people in his circle that he's instigating and inflaming. Yeah. So yeah. it's just endless. It yeah. Is nonstop. Yes. Yes. And 
So where I want to go with you is we've recognized some of those stress responses. So, you know, you can feel the adrenaline starting to run through your, your, your body. Mm-hmm. And I got some stomach wonkiness happening. You've, you've said you've got the whoosh in the back of the head. That is when you are starting to go into fight mode. And so what you want to do is in that moment, you want to give yourself space. It's like you want to almost hit the pause button mm-hmm. so that you can begin to slow everything down and come back home to your own body and respond mm-hmm. in a way that feels good to you, quite bluntly, in a way that's not automatic response, right, right. in a way that you can really stand in your dignity and in your integrity. Yeah. So do you have any tools or techniques that help you in that moment to ground, to center? Um, there's several. I'm not always, I don't always recall to use them in the moment. Yeah. So uh, let's say we're in 2023. Discovery was 2018. So my responses today are far more um recollected they're more like a response than a reaction they're less triggered so there's you know I mean there's all this great um they're not as intense they're not as frequent they're not as long lasting there's a quicker you know recovery afterwards um but one of them like I had done a dbt class is some of the tapping some of it is just being present um one you know one of the other things I had started doing was just standing in in the house (laughs) not like in the grocery store (laughs) in the courtroom but um, like if something's really triggering and I can, I could feel the whoosh, I actually just started screaming at the top of my lungs. I've never screamed like before, just in anger or fear, like just to discharge it. I started doing that. Beautiful. Um, I love that. Uh, and I think that's cathartic too, because like, it just doesn't get stored in the body and then you just move through it. Absolutely. And I'm going to encourage you to actually keep doing that, whether it's screaming out loud screaming into a pillow. One of the Mm -hmm. best things that you could do is offer yourself a good old fashioned temper tantrum. So taking a, I love to take a pool noodle cut in half because when you cut it in half, it's not quite so long. It's a little more, um, the word that comes to mind is hearty. Like it's just a little sturdy, a little more sturdy. And so a great technique is for you to just let yourself have a good old fashioned childlike temper tantrum, bang that pool noodle on that pillow, say everything you need to say, get it out with no (laughs) judgment, just meeting yourself with beautiful self-compassion until you feel an energetic shift. And you might get mad, you might cry, you might say things that you have (laughs) no idea what you're even saying in the moment, but I want you to remember, should you choose to do this technique, which I hope you will, that you are fighting for that little girl that never got to speak for her needs, that never got to be attuned to, that never had, that never was attuned to in the way that she needed, that didn't feel as if she deserved to exist, that didn't feel as though she was worthy. That's the little girl that you're really going to bat for because she's still inside you. Right. And so you can give her a voice and say all of the things that you never got to say by beating the snot out of that pillow. And even in current, in you know, with with ex-husband's girlfriend, when she's calling you names, things of that nature, you are exactly right. The issues are in our tissues. So often we will stuff those things down, our anger, we will repress, suppress, and we hold those things and hold those things and hold those things until they become solidified in our tissues, in our bodies. Mm -hmm. So having some different techniques to get that anger up and out is so freeing. So freeing. It takes a lot of energy, takes a lot of bandwidth to hold on to anger. Well, I know um, my original recovery started in an Essanon, which is like the partners of sex addicts, Essanon 12-step primary purpose group uh, program. And we use the AA big book. And the program has worked the way it's intended to be like, and it's, 
you know, original form in the AA big book gives you your, um, I think it's your 10 step. I don't remember now. I haven't done it in a while. <laughs> um, but it's basically sitting down and doing your inventory that anytime, anytime we're triggered, you sit and you go connect to higher power, whether it's your dishwasher or a tree or God or whoever higher power is for you, you sit down and shut up and you let your, your heart speak and you listen. Mm-hmm. And what I learned in doing that was, um, is, is letting that little girl be heard. You know, yeah. what, where's my part in this? What, you know, what, did it, what, did it, what can I, what can I do better? What, you know, what, what needs to be healed? You know, how have I hurt somebody or what, what do you want to show me? What do I need to know about myself? Mm-hmm. Um, but in the crisis of the divorce and everything else going on, I've not been able to do that as frequently as I want to. And I, I noticed the difference, honestly. Oh, for sure. You know. Well, and even, even, and that was something that I sort of jotted down here because I did want to circle back to it. So a couple of last points here before we kind of begin to wind this down, even as you were explaining some of these things to me, and even as you were kind of describing details of your childhood, I got the sense that it was almost more of a bullet pointed list Mm -hmm. than it was you really feeling like I didn't sense a lot of feeling. And so I'm just curious with everything you've got going on. I, I know you, you feel as though you have to be strong, right? And, and yes, things have to get done. Your children need to be tended to and make it to school and, you know, make sure their work's done and all of these things. But how much are you really allowing yourself to get pissed, to have the space to grieve some of these things, anything from childhood to what's going on currently? Well, a lot, I think that's perceptive. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, so a lot of the childhood stuff and the, my own sexual abuse and processing, a lot of that work has been done. Like I've spent, like I said, I did, um, I lived recovery the first two and a half years, like a lifestyle. Like I really did it full time. That's how, you know, much trauma I needed to process. I spent a lot of time in prayer and meditation and journaling, left-hand dominant writing. Um, yep. So like the bullet point list for childhood, a lot of that is bullet point because there's no attachment to feelings. Like it's been processed. I believe um, when we have an injury and then in, in, in spiritual inner healing, there's an injury, right? And then yep. there's the lie that we believe in it that makes it a wound. And when we process all three of them through memory, emotions in the body, they're released. So a lot of that stuff has, but you're also accurate and perceptive in the sense of, I'm not always processing more real time now. Um, so for example, two, one was, um, my husband had filed his taxes unilaterally and left me with a several thousand dollar debt that my lawyer told me. And I said, I'm getting off the phone. And I hung up with him and I sat here and screamed like a banshee. Mm. Um, the second time that's most notable is I don't remember what it was for though. I don't remember the trigger. And I went in my bathroom and I screamed at the top of my lungs and I ranted and raved at God. I'm like, where are you? I said, all the other fathers have abandoned me. Where are you? You're supposed to be a good father. Why aren't you showing up? I'm mad at you. Like, why are you not? You're like, I just yelled at God, but I know that he loves me because if I wasn't yelling at him, then I didn't believe he would be real, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so in those two senses, I am processing, but they're probably too far apart <laughs> Yeah, and not giving myself enough time because I'm not angry at my husband. I'm not angry at his girlfriend. I'm not angry at the people. I'm angry at the impacts, at the consequences of their, their behavior, especially my husband's behavior. You know, it's just so destructive. It's wrought so much destruction in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it. It sounds like it. So, okay. So in terms of, of sort of the feeling work sounds, and, and that's, kind of why I wanted to put that out there is I know that you have done a lot of work. So I was, I really was kind of curious about if that was more, I've processed this in the past, or I'm sort of disconnected and talking about it. Like it's more kind of this bullet pointed to-do list. So you know where my, my trauma is not processed and probably healthy boundaries. I'm not that cusp, I believe where I don't know what it feels like to feel hope. Mm. I don't know what it feels like to feel inspired right now. Yeah. I don't know really what it feels like to um, 
I feel creative. I've, I feel like I've, I know it's not gone, but it's kind of squashed away right now. It's not dormant. Not, you know, to feel creative. Um, I'm going to stop you right there, Blessing. Yeah. When you said, I don't know what it's like to feel whole, there was a cracking open. There were tears. We could yeah. hear it. To feel hope, like, like to feel hope, yeah. you know? People have asked me, well, what are you going to do when the divorce is over? I'm like, I have no concept. Like I'm in such survival mode. Yeah. The thought of even um, like, I don't even know what I dream about. So if I need to process anything and really feel it, I don't think it's so much as much as the trauma anymore, except for whatever comes up sporadically. The, But really just moving forward, like what is my dream? What visions do I have? What inspires me? What brings me joy? And that's some of the stuff that I, because there's so much functionality and utilitarianism still going on trying to survive this. I just, I don't know how to tap into that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's go back to that moment where there was a little bit of a cracking open and some tears and some sadness around that. If those tears could speak, what would they say? They would say that I want freedom. I want joy in my life. No, I, I need them. I don't want them. I need them. I need inspiration and nurture and nourishment and to be known. And tenderness. I need tenderness in my life. Mm. And gentleness. Beautiful. So you just listed a whole slew, beautiful slew of <laughs> universal core human needs, freedom, joy, inspiration, nourishment, tenderness, gentleness. What's really present for you right now, Blessing? That I've grieved a lot of that stuff in bits and pieces, um, but I haven't really processed the wholesale destruction, but the lack of that stuff and the deprivation and the abuse has caused in my life. Yeah. Yeah. To lead me to be a 47 year old woman with two beautiful radiant children. Yeah. And holding a shit heap of garbage and nothing to show for it. Yeah. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. I got a destroyed business. For, there's no assets. There's no money. There's no life insurance. There's no, there's just nothing. And I let me qualify that. The children, Reese and Riley, the babies are miracles. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't mean nothing, obviously. No. They're your most precious. I just meant the material stuff. I'm sorry. But well, I just even a career, you know, having my own career, yeah. writing a book. Let me write a book. Let me start my own business, you know. Yes, yes. I think I'm speaking to a woman who is so bright and so witty and smart and full of love and honesty. And she's been through some, some real shit. Like you have a really high shit tolerance blessing. <laughs> like truly. Can I got to interrupt you there? I, I'm sorry. I, my last therapist, I, you know, was with her for about a year and a half and she was a Christian woman, very beautiful soul. And she's heard my whole story. She heard the trauma. She heard that the, this, all the stuff after the addiction and all most of the beginning of the divorce stuff. And she said, blessing. She goes, you have lived in hell. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's stories where my mom died and they lost her body and they said she was too heavy and it's just that there was an autopsy and a coroner. It's just, it, she sold her life insurance. It's just the insanity that's going on. She's like, you have lived in hell. My brother has accused me of murdering my mom because I was her power of attorney for medical proxy for her medical stuff. Um, and I'm going to claim that. <laughs> yeah. I, I am a living miracle. Yeah. I have lived through hell. Yeah. But here's, I don't want to be the tough, rough and tough, um, survivor anymore. Yeah. You know, I want to rest and be a tender, open, warm, receptive woman that I know that's been in there the whole time, yes. but hasn't had the safety to come out. 
Yes. I don't want the hardened heart anymore. Like I have a guarded heart now, but I don't want to go back to a hardened heart. Yeah. But I, I do need to, you know, keep my heart guarded and let these other more um, beautiful traits be breathed into life. Yes. I'm hearing a woman who is ready for more. Yeah, I am. So what is something, just a small action step that you can take to nurture one of these needs that you listed? I can sit down, maybe even with the children too, I don't know. And us just have a goofy brainstorming session around what kind of business we can do, like just different business ideas, something that might be fun. Like one of the ideas I did have was like a conversations cafe kind of coffee shop, but I wanted it to be for connection and healing and ministering, not for coffee. Like I don't want it to be a Starbucks where everybody's coming in and they're plugged in uh, to internet. Like there's not going to be internet. (laughs) Make it a beautiful space. I want it to be a space where, where I didn't have like a, a, a living room with plants and cozy books and, but where you're going in, you're going to sit down to be heard where you can sit and talk to somebody where you can be ministered to, or somebody, if you desire to pray with you, but you're not coming in to sit down and get on your phone and isolate in a room full of people. (laughs) Creating a safe space. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. A safe and sacred space. I love this. I love the idea of you know, taking post-it notes or, I mean, don't make it complicated. It could even be a a piece of eight and a half by 11 paper and jotting down, beginning that process of brainstorming. Like what are some things that inspire me that really get me excited to think about and to possibly put out into the world? because you are, you're ready for more. I also think, so, so that's a piece of your homework. I also think, and again, I wrote this down so we could circle back to it real quick. I really would like to see you blessing, get some support Mm -hmm. that can look like friendship, somebody outside of family. You know, you listed off several family members that just really aren't available to be healthy resources for you. Is there anybody that comes to mind as I'm saying this, that you have thought about possibly reaching out to, to develop a relationship with? Um, those family members haven't been in my life for a while. So they're, they're at arm's length already. I do have a few, what I call spiritual sisters that I reach out to. One is my childhood best friend. Um, one is like a real spiritual best friend where I can just call her up and stuff like that. There's a few people here locally where I live that we can get together for coffee or lunch once in a while. Um, and I was doing that fairly regularly early in the divorce when I had lawyers, but I have not since I lost them. Yeah. So I can make more of a commitment to myself to get out and get coffee or lunch with one of these girlfriends. Yeah. And really allowing yourself, as you mentioned, to be seen and yeah. to let the guard down a little bit. And to allow these women to pour into you and nourish you and support you because everything amplifies in isolation. And I know, I think it was even before we hit record, you were speaking about how you're just legitimately lonely. Yeah. Like there is that. I I met with a woman this week. I I knew I needed to just get out and pour out and I met with her and I, I do, and I can do that. But I think what's happening is because the divorce is all consuming like I don't have a hobby, right? There just really legitimately isn't any time. Single mom, there's no family here. My husband's not doing anything to co-parent at all. So um, I think what I, I'm speculating, I'm guessing, making up a story, what might be for other people. I just think they're sick of hearing about it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? They don't want to hear about it anymore because it's not like I'm coming and saying, oh, you know, I did this project or, you know, I planted this garden. Like there's just nothing else in my life to talk about right now. And the charity to them, it's got to get time. It's got to get old, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love your awareness and, and, you know, you kind of called yourself out and said, it's a, it's a story, which yes. Yeah. (laughs) And you're, you're, you're noticing that, okay, maybe this has, I mean, I believe that sometimes 
several things can be true. So there could be that possibility, right? Yeah. And there also could be the possibility of this is just your time to allow yourself to be supported, to allow yourself to be mothered, to be held. And it's really uncomfortable for you because that's not been your norm. Okay. So you're okay. kind of pushing up against that edge of vulnerability and it feels really unfamiliar to you because you've never been in that situation before where anybody's ever really held and supported you. Yeah. And you can even call yourself. I I love to call myself out. Like I like to just get real time honest with people like, Mm -hmm. Hey, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer again on this coffee date, but man, I am, I am just really struggling with this particular situation. I'm wondering if we could just talk about it for five minutes. I'd really like your feedback and then move on. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I did it on a zoom meeting once. I'm like, I need help prioritizing some major decisions. And a couple of people showed up and they were like, well, we can't really help you, but we'll pray for you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think part of it is because like that book I showed you at the beginning of the interview, the course of control of children, mother's lives. May I read a quote from that? Yeah, please. I think part of it, like we're talking about getting support, right? Where's my glasses? I think part of it's hard to get support in the sense of um, at least just having like some a consistent person to help here. I, my best friend does, but to, for developing. The other thing too is I'm new in Nebraska. So mm. I've really been here two and a half years. So it's just about, you know, the first year we were here was like moving in and getting used to the community and then the divorce hit. And so it's like, there's not even really been a whole heck of a lot of time to even plug in and get to know any, you know, real community here. Well, now's your chance. I will. Um, so the quote is from Course of Control in Children's and Mothers' Lives by Emma Katz. And it's talking about understanding the position of a survivor parent. And the paragraph says, it says, um, a mother whose children are being harmed as part of the uh, father figures campaign of course of control has very little power or choice in how to respond. The perpetrator is effectively entrapped the mother via an array of strategies. And she goes on to this strategy. And so when I think I reach out to for support, like the Zoom meeting I did, people just didn't know how to help because I really am trapped in a lot of ways. So it would distill down to, um, you know, going along with what you said about just getting emotional support to help carry the burden, the emotional burden of it and the mental and the psychological burden of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. They're, they're not supposed to know the ins and outs of your divorce and proceedings. And like, people just don't always know those things. Mm-hmm. And they can still hold a loving space for you to feel seen, to feel heard. And your job is simply to let it in and receive it. Okay. So that you know, you do deserve to exist. You are worthy. You are a deserving person to have amazing intimate relationships. And I do crave that. I do crave that. Healthy relationship. Yeah. And that's part of my, when you ask what else inspires me, one of the things is like the inner healing and renunciation prayers and just really being inspired by our Lord and sharing that with other people in a healing capacity, right? Mm-hmm. Like breathing life into other people and um, or helping affirm them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is what I recall bringing the most joy to me but again it's kind of been buried the last year or so but that was like an, um, a joy that was physical where there was like an expansiveness in the chest and an openness like that interior um interior openness mm-hmm. kind of joy you know yeah and and I hear you and that I do believe that's part of your skill set and it's also time for you to let some of that in as well from other people. Okay. Let other people breathe life into you. You breathe life into you by supporting yourself through self-care, by supporting your nervous system with different regulation tools, breathing, grounding, um, you know, by releasing some of those heavy, big feelings that we talked about, those are all ways that you can meet and see yourself. 
It can be both. It can be you nourishing you and allowing others to nourish you. And when we start to do that, our self-worth, our self-confidence builds. We trust ourselves so that even when we do go into the courtroom and have to face these really, really big things, Mm -hmm. we have our own back. Even if our knees are knocking, even if our armpits are sweating, even if it feels like somebody cranked up our body temperature to 700 degrees, we've got our own backs. Yeah. That's just your body having a response. That's all it is. That's all it is. But you through all of this will learn to have your own back and to trust yourself. Does this make sense? It does actually. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Are you feeling complete for now? I am. (laughs) And I feel heard. (laughs) Good, good. Awesome. What a delight to speak with you, Blessing. You have got quite a story and you are quite a uh, victor, shall I say, a victor, like warrior. I was, I think what I'm trying to say, there are really good things ahead for you. You, uh, I don't know if you can necessarily hear it or see it, but you're actually quite clear on things. And so I'm excited to see where you go from here. Thank you. Well, I'll reach out to you and give you an update as that breakthrough comes. I would love that. Thank you very much for this opportunity, Krista. I'm grateful for it. If you like this episode or you're a fan of the Becoming Boundaried show, the best way you can show your support is to share it on your social media outlets and with your family and friends. And if you're feeling really generous, we would love for you to hop on over to iTunes and give us a review. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a part of this community. Have an amazing week and as always, stay true to you.